Hi, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, supported by UBS. This is the final episode of our first season, and I really couldn't imagine a more fitting guest for it than Miranda July. Early in her career, Miranda's films appeared in major art world exhibitions, such as the Whitney Biennials of both 2002 and 2004, and then the 2008 Yokohama Triennial. But when she was asked to be part of the 2009 Venice Biennial, Miranda instead produced a series of interactive sculptures for that quixotic garden that lies at the very end of the Arsenale. Today, many people think of Miranda primarily as a film director. Last year, she released Cajillionaire, her third feature, in the midst of the pandemic. In addition, Miranda rigorously alternates between making films and the writing of both fiction and nonfiction books, as well as being active as a performance artist. While Miranda remains wary of technology's impact upon our lives, in 2014, she launched the highly inventive Somebody app, which deployed strangers to personally deliver text messages between friends. Then, in late 2019, she staged on Instagram an ambiguous love story in which she co-starred with the young actress Margaret Qualley. This interview turned out to be almost as wide-ranging as Miranda's career. The topics we covered include the artist's need to take risks and be vulnerable, the potential pitfalls of making political art, and the value of catalyzing your own creative freefall. And stick around at the end for a short feature, curator Larry Osei-Mensa interviewing John Gray of the Ghetto Gastro Collective, which has turned cooking food into social practice in his native New York and far beyond. Before we start the interview, I want to thank UBS for taking the plunge with us, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode, and indeed to the entire series. If you like it, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and we're looking forward to having you in the audience next year. Miranda, you have a very sort of American biography in the sense that you were born in Vermont, grew up in Berkeley, and then at what I take to be quite a formative age, ended up in Portland as part of and on the edges of the riot girl scene, which was really a very defining moment culturally. Today, you've engaged in so many different types of artistic production that it's hard to classify you. But is it fair to say that making films was your first real artistic production? Well, actually, I wanted that to be the case. I wanted to be a director, but because... I didn't have any way to do that. The first things I made were plays, and I put them on at 924 Gilman Street, which was the seminal all-ages punk club in Berkeley. The first one was based on my correspondence with a, a man in prison, a murderer. And then from there, they did get weirder and punker and eventually just became me performing alone. And then around that same time, yes, I finally started borrowing video cameras and making movies. And then I could finally be the director I had been calling myself. Can you tell us about the first play before we go into your films about corresponding with a man in prison? How did that come about and how did it translate into work? Yeah, he wasn't the first random person I tried to write to, but there were just lists of prisoners in the backs of magazines, like write a prison pen pal. I, I don't know what the idea was there. I don't think they do that anymore. But I just chose this person at random. And, you know, after an initial kind of like having to set ground rules about like this isn't sexual, we had a really long and intense correspondence over years that included tape letters, so audio recorded letters from both sides, and just a lot of written 
letters. And he was kind of like a mildly terrifying, but surprisingly sweet uncle or something. When I'm driving in like an int- uh, like hard situation, like it's raining or something, I always remember him saying, Miranda, never forget a car is a ballistic missile. There's this theoretical idea, like, I want to be an artist. You know, I want to be a writer or something, performer. And then suddenly that was matched with an emotional scope that was beyond me. It was more than I could bear holding this whole world, his prison world, inside me as a teenager going to high school. I couldn't explain it to anyone I was starting to feel very alienated just from my regular life. And that is when art comes into its purpose, when you actually can't keep living without somehow expressing yourself. And and so it was the first thing where that feeling was strong enough that I just wrote it down as a play. And I held open auditions in Berkeley. I put an ad in the paper and I had to call these people and say, I'm 17 and we'll be rehearsing in my parents' attic and putting this on at a punk club. Huh. So you went from that play, as you said, into making films. And those films actually brought you on to the art circuit. They were shown at the Whitney, they were shown at MoMA. And then eventually, many years later, you were part of the Venice Biennial. I'm curious if you could tell our listeners what the piece was and sort of what it made you think about the international art circuit. I guess my thinking in terms of what to do. I thought, well, I've never been to the show. I hadn't been to Venice. (laughs) And I thought, well, most people will probably see this through pictures. Instagram was invented the same year. There was the thing where you could put a hashtag on a photo. And I was like, this seems important, this hashtag thing. And this is 2009. And kind of how people are going to experience everything. And so I need to make a piece that will be photographed no matter what. And as I was walking around, it's a tourist place, Venice is, as much as anything. And so you see an awful lot of people posing, and they'll pose with anything. And so I thought, well, if I just make pieces that people want to pose with, and so I made pedestals for people to stand on and things to put their heads through, and they spoke to things that were going on in my life at the time. They're about guilt and innocence and sexuality. So they're intimate in that way, but they're also very much these props. And then I remember this sort of moment of truth as the show opened and I just sat in the garden and just as people came in, I was like, okay, either they're going to start posing or they're not. (laughs) And they did. And it was quite beautiful to see them all take out their cameras and their phones and start photographing each other. Of course, now that piece so different. Now I think of it kind of as as much about that moment technologically, but I did always think of the finished work not as the sculptures, but of the photos that people took and disseminated. Yeah, I mean, it's a very early realization on the part of the artist involving the audience. You also designed a short-lived but incredibly interesting app called the Somebody app. The core of which was that strangers were delivering messages between friends, which is an enormously intimate and yet potentially super creepy situation. And I'm curious where the idea came from and why it didn't continue. Right. So I guess one of the kind of nerdy things about me is sometimes the medium itself is the inspiration. They're intriguing to me, these different mediums. And so at that moment... 
when apps were like a new thing that you could make an app. And so I was sitting around with friends at a party being like, if you could make an app, what would it be? And we started talking about singing telegrams and in high school, how you could like deliver a flower on Valentine's Day and just how exciting that always was to have someone come up to you. And it's like, moi? And then as a director, I liked the idea of people having to act out each other's scripts as surrogates. I also had explored this idea of surrogates in this novel, The First Bad Man, that I had just written. So the tagline was, if you can't be there, somebody can. And somebody's the app and also the idea that there's always people around the person who you would like to be with. There's other people who could stand in for you. And so I had the idea I can get so manic. And I was just on fire about this idea. Couldn't sleep, was like constantly looking up domain names that were available. And I checked out through someone who made stuff. I was like, is this a cheap app? And it was not at all a cheap app. It was about as complicated as it got at that point. Messaging, geolocation, there were enough people using it that if you were in a city, you could send a message or deliver a floating message. And I really loved it. I mean, for me, it may have just been like the app that I wanted, of course. I loved delivering messages. I loved getting them. It was just the sort of limited, controlled interaction with a stranger that left both people with pounding hearts and kind of flushed. And it got right away into like, well, for this to continue, it needs investors and it becomes a company. And there were actually investors who wanted to do it. And I went up to San Francisco and had meetings. And there was just this moment of truth where I was like, oh, hold on. I'm an artist. (laughs) What am I thinking? I'm not going to run a business. I can't do this. And it was very much day-to-day, hours and hours of work. And so I just said, let's just call this a project and let it go. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. Four out of five collectors surveyed expressed concern about gender disparities and the profile of female artists in the market. That is translating to dollars and cents. Dealers with a higher share of female artists performed better last year than those with a lower share. How will the market respond? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. I want to pivot to another part of your practice, which is books. And I'll start with a book that I read in the midst of the pandemic, although it was very old. I think it was probably almost 20 years old. It's called It Chooses You. And this is a book which you made based upon scouring the ads of a publication called The Penny Saver, where people advertise things they want to sell. And you went to meet people selling things such as outfits from India, bullfrog tadpoles, other people's photo albums. And it's kind of a fascinating tour through LA, which is a place where homes are like the retreat. And so you use this as a way to get into people's houses, but also to meet and photograph, and in some cases, build very intimate relationships with them. And I'm kind of curious how this idea came to you and and what it was like to cross all these doorsteps, knowing only the name of the person and the thing they were trying to sell. Right. 
again, it had weirdly sort of to do with technology because I was like, well, who the heck would sell something through the penny saver in this day and age? Like Craigslist is the very least what you use. And I also thought this isn't going to exist for much longer. And it didn't. It basically closed by the time I was done with that project, the, the penny saver. And so it was a little bit like, who are these people? And also I wrote about this in the book, this sense already, it's painful to think of how much worse this has gotten, of how siloed we were and how you just, it was very hard to leave your lane and that cars didn't help. I don't think I knew this quite so much then, but certainly, as it turns out, technology doesn't help as much as it might seem to. That you had to kind of do something uncomfortable and counterintuitive to just see what other lives are living right next to you. And the penny saver was sort of just a premise. They were people expecting phone calls from a stranger anyways, because they'd put their number out there. It's the kind of thing you always dread right before. You're like, why? Like, and then I would have the interaction and I'd walk out of there just high as a kite, just being like, this is why we are on earth, just to know each other. And it, it usually felt very mutual because everyone had a story to tell, consciously or not, it got told. And I was there to listen and I am a storyteller too. Along the lines of meeting strangers, I'm going to dig into this a little bit because I think it's, it's important. You've had this willingness to take risks that other people don't take, sometimes even physical in terms of putting yourself in situations with people you don't know. This is an aspect of your work that's made it incredibly successful because it's both intimate and authentic. Are there times where it went wrong? I say this with all due humbleness and gratitude to the gods or my guides or whoever. It never goes wrong because it's my I'm here. Things go very, very wrong the rest of the time um, or can easily go wrong just at any given normal situation. But in that zone, that's where I'm most free and most generous and my higher self. Certainly, I do look back, frankly, very early form of this. At the time, I thought of it more like a job, but was working in the peep shows. And I definitely look back and think, oh, wow, right. 21 is super young. But no, some amount of luck and privilege and some like wit. I took self-defense. I'm alert. Uh, yeah, but I do think that's the zone where my instincts come into play the best, mm -hmm. maybe. To many women, especially those of generation behind you, your fearlessness is iconic. Given all the things you've done that other people would never have done, what are you afraid of? I guess the things that I get most scared about work-wise, you know, the world is very scary to me right now, but the things I get most scared about, I also therefore must do. I'm not going to go into it now, but like the thing I'm writing about now and I've been writing about for a few years is very embarrassing to me and kind of shameful. And I remember actually being so stressed out about it that I said to a friend, like, what am I doing? I don't have to do this. No one would say, why didn't you do that? And she said, this was Sheila Hetty, the writer. She was like, I'm so jealous. Wish I had something that I was that embarrassed about because <laughs> that's gold, right? That's your gold. And from that moment on, I was like, oh, right. So anytime I feel afraid, terrified, it simultaneously comes with a feeling of I'm rich, rich with the thing that matters most, which is something to feel about. The last big thing that you brought 
into the public domain is Quadrillionaire, the first movie you made in which you don't actually appear. And many people consider it your masterpiece. One of the things that's striking in the context is that the central character is a young woman called Oldolia, whose parents are lifelong grifters. And she's remarkably disconnected from any sort of real interaction with other human beings. And somehow or other, through fate, this movie came out right in time for the pandemic, which meant that all of us were disconnecting from other human beings voluntarily to a huge degree. First of all, I imagine it was extremely dispiriting to not have the normal release choreography that you would have. And secondly, what was it like to have this particular film come out in this pandemic context? It came in stages from do we wait to see if this clears up to like, oh, do we wait all the way till the other side? Do we hold the movie till this is done? And I, at that point, was like, you know what? I don't need the world to be perfect for my movie. And this movie is at its core really about loneliness and transformation. And I came to believe that I made it for us then in that moment and that you don't pick your historical moment, but it collaborates with the work to make it what it always was going to be. And I did feel that about it. So I remember it came out in theaters in safe towns, which is, of course, the opposite of a normal release, and then just streaming. And most people watched it streaming. And I remember being like, okay, so it's out. And I guess that was that. And I was pretty sad. I was just alone. Nothing happened. Nothing different about my day. And then um, just on a whim, I looked at Instagram and I was like, oh, wait, what are all these messages, these DMs? As we all kind of came to realize, oh, if there was any point to social media, it may have been just as a tool to use during pandemics, <laughs> um, which would maybe be a way we should think about it. Because that, for me, these hundreds and hundreds of long, heartfelt responses written by people who were alone and had just watched it and then just wrote, that was my entire experience of the release, was those messages. So it's such a mixed thing. I mean, I'm always wrestling with the technology, but in that moment, I was like, well, that is why I do this. I'd love to meet these people, but Knowing what they felt and they were so articulate was very moving and it allowed me to experience it and move on. So while we're on the topic of COVID-19, you've always had a very political dimension to your work. And one of the big things that happened during the pandemic was this parallel reckoning with race in America and across the globe that hadn't happened in the same dimension and with the same persistence. And I think impact as before. And I'm curious how you saw that playing out in your personal and professional lives? Yeah, I remember I was making an early pandemic piece that was a collaboration. People would shoot parts of a movie and DM them to me through Instagram, and I would edit them into a movie. And that was like very comforting in this phase one pandemic. And I, I was about to keep going with that. And I always follow through. I always finish things. And this was a rare moment where I was like, you know what? Because suddenly George Floyd and Black Lives Matter erupted. And I just shifted. I was like, this is such a weird time. And I don't want to be clinging to anything old, even my own work. For me, as I think with most people I knew, it, it was a, a time where you suddenly wanted to really ask, is what I'm doing really helping anyone directly? And what did you conclude? It's a hard thing. I go back and forth. Sometimes I see artists who become very political. And I have to be honest, I think it 
sometimes can shrink the room for their work and that something is lost, Mm -hmm. if that person suddenly has to be accountable in a way that I don't necessarily think is the most powerful role for an artist, because you should probably as an artist be not bulletproof. You want to be manifesting things that we are unable to face in ourselves, unable to articulate or even understand. And if you're doing that, it's probably not going to be perfect. That's not the nature of art or the history as I've known it. That's just a different space from if you do align yourself very clearly and publicly with different causes that you feel very strongly about. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? I do just think that to expect your work not to be held to that standard, which may not be a possible standard for art. (laughs) It's not that you would fail at it. It's just that you couldn't help it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to have the vulnerability necessary to be a great artist while placing yourself on a pedestal. Right, exactly. I think it's the pedestal part, purporting to know something narrows the space. And so you try and think, well, what can I do in this unknowing space? I actually think there's a vast amount of room for artists doing what they do, not even just for a fundraiser, but simply doing their work, I think is crucial and historically so much a part of every rebellion. You talked about the specificity of being a woman in the arts or the fact of being a woman in the arts. In my research, I came across something which made me think of Virginia Woolf writing about needing a room of her own in which to write. And if I'm not mistaken, you have an entire house in Echo Park, which is the room of your own. Can you tell me about that house and what happens there? Yeah, it's a little... I would be picturing something a lot more amazing if if I was hearing this. I'll just say it's not much from the outside, like a little beige stucco box, but inside... It does actually have two bedrooms and it's bigger than it looks. And it was the first place I lived when I moved here 17 years ago. And it was even cheap rent for then. So I remember when I moved in with Mike Mills, I thought I'm never letting go of it. That would be the biggest mistake of my life. And it has been a production office. I've made everything here. Certainly everything I've written, I've written here and In the last couple years, I started doing a thing where I spend every Wednesday night here. I spend the night here in this bed, in this bedroom. And you mentioned Virginia Woolf. You know, I'm a mother as well. And I think, in a way, the triangle of Mike and my child and and me is very tight. And you sometimes don't realize what the system can bear. This construction of a family actually can handle one or the other person not being there one night a week just fine. In fact, it's probably better for everyone. And for me as an artist, it became increasingly important to have, you know, it ends up being like 48 hours where I'm not anything but an artist. You don't stop being a mom, but I think that's been an important shift I was talking about you with our mutual friend, Jeffrey Deitch, and he said that you're a truly singular artist, and he compared you to Marcel Duchamp in the sense that his view of you is that your entire life is an artwork. And I think it's true from outside, at least, that I don't see a gap between your personality and your persona, but maybe from inside, you see it differently. Oh, yeah, certainly there's characters or things kind of developed that are more extreme versions of certain sides of myself. But in terms of like, yeah, day doesn't really go by when I don't make something. And often it's not the thing I planned on making. 
that day. It's just through living. Yeah, I think it is my way of surviving, of understanding the world. And I think, you know, there's this sense when you're younger, like this is all building to something really fantastic, some like ultimate reward. And then I'm 47. And then, then I think at a certain point, it's like, oh, actually, if I can just keep on doing this forever, that would be very lucky. It's not even so much about performing or the audience as much as getting to be, it's not play the fool, but like be in this rare position where you learn through experiencing and that in and of itself is the work and the work is just this life. I don't like the word fool in a way because it seems kind of undermining for a woman, but maybe the most powerful thing is to be in free fall all the time and to not be trying to win or control or know completely. Different topic. I spent last week in isolation, and one of the things that I did was to binge watch this series, The Maid, which stars Andy McDowell and her daughter, Margaret Qualley. And you and Margaret did this very public exchange of videos evoking a love affair played out in the public domain and ending with this ritual, which was meant, I guess, both to cement and dispel this impossible love. I don't know what to make of it, and neither did the internet. Are you willing to illuminate us about that? If you're not going to tell us whether it was real or not, at least tell us what was going on and how it came about. Yeah. So I just finished Kajillionaire and I was waiting for it to come out. I'm not like a cinephile, like a purist because I work in all these mediums. It's always interesting to me like, oh, okay, so TikTok. I assume film is evolving and going to become more like other arts where anyone could do it. I like that. And I had this idea of somehow you could make a decentralized, very spontaneous movie that had an emotional intensity that wouldn't be possible with something that was larger financially or had the unions involved and was safer. And so I had that idea floating in my head. And then Margaret and I met at a party and instantly were all over each other in the creative sense. She gave me her number and was like, if you ever want to make anything. And then I called her and she was already in New York. And I was like, well, I think we could do something through FaceTime. And so I wrote a quick script and we didn't know each other beyond this party. So I I wrote the script and we performed it and I figured out how you record it. The funny thing was it was so fun and we were so in it that the script ended and we just kept going. So the last half of that first piece, the first sort of episode is just completely improvised. And even before I hit stop on it, I was already like, oh, we could do anything. I could do anything with this person. And so I said, when we were done, I was like, do you want to keep this going? And basically, I'll keep writing this relationship. My narrative brain came out and I really mapped out the whole thing, the whole arc of it. And yeah, it was this kind of impossible romance. And meanwhile, we were having our own romance just as friends who only were meeting in this way. We didn't meet as ourselves until well after it was done. You know, and I remember the first time we sat down and had dinner together, she was like, so what was that all about? (laughs) (laughs) And we like just laughed because other than directing her, like it was all in character. And there were some interesting twists. I mean, I really loved playing with what could happen spontaneously. So I remember at a certain point being like, oh, this is funny. Jaden Smith is leaving comments. Like there's someone. And I just DM'd him, hey, do you want to join in on this thing Margaret and I are doing? 
he had written back just immediately being like, I am there. <laughs> I forget what he said, that he fainted or something just so sweet. He was so diligent. I mean, we all were, frankly, like he memorized four pages of dialogue. I think if we pulled something off, it was in somehow keeping the organicness while having it very scripted. And yeah, it unfurled in real time. Literally last night, you appeared in this Gucci runway show, which was actually a parade in the streets of Los Angeles. And I'm curious how you see your relationship to fashion, how you came to be part of that, where you see the fashion world fitting within the other domains that you live within. Yeah, that's a funny thing. I have always loved clothes. And I've always thought of clothes as my one pure pleasure. It has nothing to do with work. I can't really justify it other than just joy. And of course, one can see how it dovetails with everything, but also not. Also, it's just dumb joy. I get to feel amateur-y and it felt really great to be walking, thinking like I, I'm still pretending to be a runway model the way anyone might, but I, here I am actually in it. And I like that place. That feels free to me to not be expert. It's also very fun to just have an excuse to perform, especially because I'm deep in writing a novel right now. So it's a nice little break. You've talked, or others at least have talked about you alternating rigorously between making films and writing books, which at this point are your two main activities. One of these is a very solitary activity, and the other involves managing large groups of people. So I'm curious how you develop this pattern of alternation and how it serves your work and how you see these relating to each other, or are they separate processes? Yeah, I sort of feel like in my most core self, I'm a writer and a performer. But then the sort of ultimate storytelling thing on a grand scale is filmmaking. So how could I not want to do that? That's almost like the child's version of the dream of being a writer-performer. But despite all this collaboration with strangers and stuff, I don't want to really talk to anyone <laughs> or go out. I'm the person on the airplane who just puts their headphones on right away. So you just know that that won't be an option. So that is just to say, I mean, I'm not like uh, mean or anything, but. But Miranda, I mean, honestly, that's what you may think about yourself. But the reality is that time after time in your career, you've not only invented pretexts for interacting with people or for other people to act with each other, but you've also put yourself in situations which most people would never dare to put themselves in, not because they're necessarily dangerous, but also because they're potentially embarrassing. It seems to me like there's a fundamental tension between the desire not to interact with the people and this obsession with interacting with people you don't know. Right. Well, the key word there was daring or whatever, discomfort. Before everything, before the plays, before any idea of doing any of this, I was just a kid who really liked a dare. It was sort of famous for like, there's no dare too wild or embarrassing that I want to. I loved that feeling of this is against the law and therefore I'm free to do it. And that feeling of realizing you can just do it. There's actually no rule. Yeah, I just did a piece where I went up to strangers on the beach and asked if I could dance in front of them, blocking their view of the ocean. 
it just felt so great. And it was always had to be consensual and enjoyable, but also uncomfortable. And I guess that's the thing. It's the breaking the law part, whatever level the law is, sometimes just an internal law that gets me more than just a general friendliness. Yeah, I think that's it. Is it fair to say that for you, the scariest thing you can do is to interact with strangers in potentially awkward and intimate ways, and that because you're fundamentally a daredevil, that's the thing you always want to do? <laughs> yeah, either that or just write alone. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I guess one thing also is maybe because I have really, really thick internal world, the story-making world is very... I'm very convinced by all my internal imaginings. And so getting out of that and realizing like, oh, for this person, their world and their way of doing things is utterly convincing. I guess there is a point where like my thing is just, it has its limits. You can only go so far in your imaginary land. And that's where things come alive is just the unpredictableness of how were you raised and what was normal for you. And, and you get that in an instant, really, with someone the second you are totally open to them. And I guess there is something there. I mean, the daredevil thing supports this other thing, which is always trying to break out of the dream because the dream is so thick. I feel like one of the things that makes you so interesting, so compelling, so singular is the fact that Miranda July, as we see her, is a person who is really who we see. Not that you don't have an inner dialogue or that kind of thing. And I know that July is not your real name. So when I ask the question, when did you become Miranda July? I don't mean when did you change your name? I mean, mm -hmm. was there a moment where you stopped being just a kid who takes dares and you became somebody who transformed that into a life? Yeah. Into a living? Well, I'll say, so the end of that story about the play, about the murder, and that play was called The Lifers. And I remember sitting in the audience because I wasn't in that play. And it was going pretty badly, I'd say. Um, <laughs> wasn't going great. But nonetheless... The feeling of sitting there and everyone's watching my fucking soul up there. And I remember consciously thinking, okay, this, this is it. This is what I'll do in whatever form for the rest of my life. It was immediately problematic to have a teenager who's decided what they want to do. And there's no clear path. My mom actually just a few weeks ago came across all these letters, I guess, that I had written in, in the very early days, not long after that play when I was trying to make a living, but really trying to just make this work. But I was stripping and she wrote me an email. I mean, they were horrified. My parents, they, you know, cut me off financially, hoping I would go back to school or something. She said, you know you really knew what you were doing. And there's no way, I guess we could have known that or had faith, but in retrospect, I'm sorry. Sorry we fought you so hard. And I was like, gosh, I wonder if I can take this in because my whole personality is formed around the fact that I was on my own and it didn't matter, I didn't care. But it was somewhat gratifying. Anyway, so just to say, yes, right in that moment, that was the no plan B, this is it forever. Miranda, that's an amazing place to end the interview. So thank you very much. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. 
depending on where you are in the world. My name is Larry Osemensa. I am a curator, co-founder of Art Noir, and we're here talking with John Gray, co-founder of Ghetto Gastro. John and I, we've known each other many moons, many years, and it's been beautiful to watch you grow as a person, as a man, as an entrepreneur, as a visionary. And I thought it was important for us to have a, a conversation and just share your journey because I think it would inspire a lot of people thinking about tinkering and recontextualizing things. Talk to us about Ghetto Gastro, how that came to be, yeah. why food is your device for social change. Yeah, so Ghetto Gastro, the blanket way we describe it is just a culinary collective born and bred in the Bronx. And our ethos is bringing the Bronx to the world and the world to the Bronx. And that can mean a lot of different things. It's a very open-ended <laughs> mission. I had been in this business program. Les was the chef at the time in the restaurant, my, my partner Lester. And he had wanted to do like a food truck or some type of catering business. So I'm like, all right, look, I'm learning. I'm getting these outlines and I'm learning this stuff in this program. And I'm just giving him the, the knowledge. And I'm like, yo, one day we'll do something. And I've always just thought food, like you have to be ready to lose money to do it. Because it's like you hear about needing a million dollars to start up, the amount of failure, especially in New York City, like in terms of the restaurant world and the low margins and all of these things. So I never really thought about it as an exercise in capitalism. I thought it would be a passion project that I pursue with less once I already made my mint in the world. But after years of like struggling in the fashion world, like we started, you know, that 2008 moment, mm -hmm. right? That recession, it just kind of flipped everything upside down. Retail was crazy. It's like, I had to think about, man, what would I do if it wasn't about the money? And I just kept coming back to food. So that's why I'm like, all right, maybe this is where I should start. And I'm like, all right, man, my boy Les, he had just one chopped. He was bubbling. He was doing his thing, feeling good. I'm like, yo, we both street dudes. We're talented and skilled. But then we also have strong credibility on the street side of things. I'm like, we could probably do something interesting that has a very Bronx feeling. I woke up from a nap with the name Ghetto Gastro, and that was in 2012. It started in 12. Next year will be 10 years. And as much as it's been about food and creating incredible experiences, it's also been about social justice. You've worked with Color of Change. You've worked with some everything, Lauren Halsey's project in Los Angeles. Why has that been an integral component of the work that you do, making sure that you're working with these different organizations and really being an advocate for food justice beyond creating incredible culinary experiences? Yeah, I think because it's like a responsibility. So when I think about the work that has really fed me, it's not based on the type of money I'm making. It's like building, going and working with the youth, like mentoring youth. Like when I was doing the clothing thing, I used to wake up at like 6 a.m. and meet with some kids at this thing called the Breakfast Club at like 7.30 before they started their classes just to mentor young men. That's the stuff that I'm like, man, this feels great. And that's the work that inspires me. I know what skills I bring to the table. I, I never say I'm an activist or organized, but I, I'm Robin Hood. I'm going to be able to secure the resources, hopefully amplify the voices to help empower these folks that, that are really out here doing the work and that are teaching me and that I'm learning from. So it's like, I just can't turn a blind eye to some of these societal ills. It's like, we here that I'm trying to leave this thing better than it was when I got here. So, and have fun while doing it and doing it in a different way and not having to ask for permission. Thinking about leaving things better than you found it, you also got a project at Cooper Hewitt. And 
I would yeah, love to, yeah. you know, share with the audience that project and the platform. Well, it's funny. I got an email from the director of Cooper Hewitt. And my first assumption is that, all right, they're reaching out. They want Ghetto Gas Show to do a dinner or something. And our bandwidth and our interest in doing that type of thing is just waned. We're like, all right, what do y'all want to do? Like a dinner? She's like, no, nah, I actually want you to do a show. I'm like, oh, where? That's interesting. So started working on it from then. The show is up now until February. It's called the John Gray of Ghetto Gastro Select. So basically, they opened the archive of the Cooper Hewitt, and I could like pick objects to create a story. So we created a fictional story around Afrofuturism. The character's name is Allah, and they're like the Black Indiana Jones in a post-apocalyptic dystopian world where everything's flooded in New York and the Cooper Hewitt is underwater. And they're going to excavate these important objects and bring them like to the African Union, which is now in power, (laughs) to repatriate these objects that have been either stolen or gotten in nefarious ways into like these institutions like the Cooper Hewitt, right? So it's really about the liberation of objects, but we were able to bring in really surreal things. I'm super proud and like had the pleasure of collaborating with really dope people. What was that process like for you, you've gone from being an outsider in quotes to now people inviting you in to examine an archive. What's that process like for you? Me, I think it's like, I, I'm i glad y'all catching up. <laughs> you know, it's like, I was just excited to really disrupt this traditionally white, archaic space, like a very Black narrative on that first floor. As soon as you walk in, it's like Willie Smith and me. So it's like, all right, yeah, let's get it popping. Like, so that part was the most exciting. And I really just wanted to lean into that moment and just like take that. And for me, it's also crazy because like the school I went to, right, it's around the corner from Cooper Hewitt. But I had never been inside of the building, going into that building and being on Museum Mile, it's just like a crazy, surreal thing because we got the show at the Cooper Hewitt at right now. It's just wild because I'm like, yeah, I got banned from every high school in New York City. I don't have a diploma. I'm not trained in art, but I have a feeling and I think we have stories to tell. And also, it's like about making space for, for people that don't have that traditional background. And hopefully we can keep it interesting for folks of all flavors to come in and get busy and just make space for them to also be a part of the conversation. They say you don't organize for people, you organize with the people. So I'm with the people. Mm. So now you've expanded the gospel of the ghetto gastro where it's now in people's homes. You have a collaboration with Crux. And then also you've expanded into a CPG company with Gastronomical. Talk to us about the expansion of the mission and collaborating with now these kind of corporate organizations. Yeah, I think for us, it's always about storytelling. It's not necessarily about a dish on a plate. So for us, it's like being able to expand the message of not just Ghetto Gas Show, but like with the Crux thing, 5% of the proceeds are going to fight food insecurities, like creating a platform so more people even understand that that's an issue. And then looking into the organizations that are doing the work to fix this issue. That's really what it's about. And the consumer goods piece, we got a lot coming right now. We got the wavy waffle and pancake mix. We're focused on the anti-racist breakfast because when you look at like the Aunt Jemima's and Uncle Ben's and the roots of those things, it's like we just want to bring in a new narrative. Look out for that. We're definitely going to be doing a lot of dope projects in the world of ghetto gastro and gastronomical. Dope, dope. Thank you. With that, I appreciate your time. So thank you so much again. Larry Osei John Gray. This is the Art Basel Podcast. Until next time, peace. Peace and love. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.